Hello and welcome to Ideas Matter, the podcast that takes the most important issues of our times and explores the ideas and intellectual trends that have shaped where we are today. This episode features the lecture The Crisis of Bourgeois Ideology, from Nietzsche to Heidegger. It's the fifth in our series Culture Wars Then and Now. This particular lecture explores the broad sweep and trajectory of modernist culture from the mid-19th century through to the interwar years of the 20th century. The lecturer is Dr Tim Black, the books and essays editor at online magazine Spiked. First off, I want to apologise for the uh, uh, inexcusably pompous title. That uh, was entirely my doing, uh, and I've never been able to sort of think of perhaps a uh, more accurate one. But anyway, um, what I'm going to attempt to do over the next uh, 45 minutes is to relay a prehistory, if you like, of the culture wars. Um, I'm going to start in the latter half of the 19th century and show how a section of Europe's cultural elite, a bourgeois intellectual elite, I should probably say, became disillusioned uh, with the values and ideology of bourgeois society. Uh, I'm thinking principally there of ideas of progress, liberalism, uh, and to a certain extent democracy as well. Uh, A process, I would say, in which bourgeois society's increasing inability to justify itself, uh, the inability, if you like, of of capitalism to give rise to any values beyond itself, certainly to justify itself, starts for the first time to be experienced as a problem, to be experienced, in fact, as a cultural crisis, uh, a crisis of meaning. Uh, Not by everyone, of course, uh, and not by most, perhaps, uh, but it's there. Uh, And I think the post-1848 moment uh, is the moment at which Uh, all this starts to emerge. It's the moment at which um, bourgeois modernity, capitalistic, liberal, formally democratising, increasingly technological and instrumental, gives rise to its own broad but largely elite cultural and social uh, revolt. And I'm going to suggest that this disillusionment and revolt ultimately feeds into uh, the Great War, well, the the Great War, depending on your, uh, your perspective, in which Germany, uh, vitalistic, full of geist and promising the renewal of the world. Last year, in fact, I felt like I gave a very kind of sort of anti-German lecture. I, I don't mean to ever make it sound like that, but uh, unfortunately, it might be going that way. Um, Germany, vitalistic, full of geist and promising the renewal of the world, is opposed to the decaying, uh, disenchanted bourgeois worlds of the Anglo-French axis. Uh, I will then look at how, after the Great War, that now open sore uh, of the crisis of meaning, which was so pronounced in Germany before the war, is then pronounced across Western Europe after the war. It fuels, I think, the artistic avant-garde of, that, uh, of the late uh, 1910s and uh, 1920s, and it pushes more broadly intellectuals and writers into an ever more oppositional stance in relation to what is. And it plunges those who certainly you know, felt to a limited extent secure in the certainties and pieties of the long 19th century into a deep mode of self-questioning. Um, I think more broadly, there was an intense sense of rupture at that moment, uh, that sense of a fatal break with the pre-war way of the world, uh, that in the rather flippant words of Virginia Woolf, sometime around 1910, it seemed that human character changed. Um, and I'm going to frame this portrait of the slow-motion moral depletion of capitalism with everyone's favourite mustachioed philosophers. Of course, you can see the grand uh, macho muzzy of Nietzsche uh, there to my left, uh, which was popular in Shoreditch a few years ago, and the pinched, neat little number of Martin Heidegger, which, for unfortunate historical reasons, is probably never going to be popular again outside the British royal family. Right. 
let's start. Uh, not to put too fine a point on it, uh, 1848 is the key year. It's the year, of course, in which there was a revolutionary upsurge uh, throughout continental Europe. Uh, in Britain, there's, you know, there's something roughly equivalent in the shape of the Chartist movement, which is still persisting, still pushing for change. Um, and it's the year that many of these revolutions, of course, were simultaneously crushed. So it's a moment of uh, radicalism, but also a moment of intense reaction. And it means that after 1848, uh, the bourgeoisie's ascendancy, I think, is in question, probably for the first time. It is coming under attack from working class associations and certainly from the 1860s emerging mass socialist parties. Um, and crucially, they start to arrogate the key tenets, if you like, of bourgeois ideology, you know, notions, you know, the mantles of progress, reason, freedom. They start to arrogate those to their own socialist cause. Uh, I guess, you know, a kind of shorthand would be that Marx becomes the heir to the Enlightenment, uh, not Schopenhauer and so on. Bourgeois ideology, um, I think partially as a result of this working class challenge, also comes under assault from a from a largely bourgeois cultural elite, as I've said. Uh, that is, it comes under assault from among those who, two generations earlier, uh, were cheering on uh, the French Revolution. Among intellectuals, writers and artists then, I think there was a, there was a growing uh, and I think possibly shared sense of the problem. And it, this, are the, uh, this is how it's framed at this point in the, in the 1850s, 1860s, this problem of bourgeois decadence. And decadence, I think, is the key word of this era. Uh, it's a sense that the, that the society built in bourgeois interests, liberal, market-based, partially democratic, is kind of lacking a reason to be. It's unable to furnish life with any kind of sense of uh, deeper meaning. There's a sense that it's in kind of moral, spiritual decline. Um, bourgeois morality appears something of a sham. You know, everywhere, they, everywhere seems to be hypocrisy that's identifiable. Uh, talk of progress and liberalism is starting to appear a little empty. And bourgeois culture uh, appears philistine, to use Matthew Arnold's words. You know, Matthew Arnold wrote, wrote those words in 1869. Uh, bourgeois culture starts to appear kind of shallow, trivial. Uh, they know the price of everything, the value of nothing, etc., etc. Now, this cultural turn, uh, this uh, turn, rather, on the part of a cultural elite um, against bourgeois society, against the ideas of progress and liberty in whose name people once rallied, uh, this turn against the mores and uh, lifestyles of the bourgeoisie and the petty bourgeoisie, uh, to an extent, is the beginning, I think, of what we know now as uh, uh, modernism. Uh, it's the beginning of the modernist challenge. It's the point at which the cultural realm is established as a distinct realm, a realm in which one attempts to give a meaning to the world, turns against the meaningless, trivial realm of business concerns. Again, to use Matthew Arnold's phrase. Uh, it's the moment, I think, when aesthetic modernity, modernism, turns against bourgeois modernity. I think one of the most striking early and lasting forms uh, that this revolt takes is that of um, aestheticism. And by that, I mean that art, the art of, uh, so the act of artistic creation itself be, uh, starts to be posited as an almost superior activity to the low, amoral business activity of bourgeois society. Uh, the aesthetic art starts to embody what bourgeois society seemingly lacks. It's a realm of meaning. It's a source of new value itself. Uh, this aestheticism, I think, has, uh, has romantic precedence. You know, the moment when the artist starts to be elevated as a singular creator of, of meaning and, and, and you know, starts to be elevated as a genius, someone who's able to conjure up worlds fr uh, from, you know, using the own, their own internal resources. Um, but even then, 
even then, even in that romantic period, that period when someone like uh, Shelley is, you know, claiming for the poet the role of a legislator for the world, even then you can see the difference between that kind of elevation of the artistic realm uh, and the elevation that starts to appear in, in, the, 18, in the 1850s. Um, because early 19th century romantics, and not just romantics, you know, people like Hegel too, uh, as disappointed as they may have been, say, with the trajectory of the French Revolution, uh, were still in some sense, I think, allied, if you like, with the bourgeoisie, allied with the revolutionary bourgeoisie, uh, whose mission, if you like, to throw off the, feudal, uh, the shackles of feudalism was felt to still be of value, which was felt to be a mission for them and for the people as a whole. But post-1848 aestheticism is different. As I say, it rejects bourgeois modernity. It sees decay and decadence where once there might have been the prospect of progress. There is no sense anymore, I think, that uh, as the early 19th century utopian socialist uh, Saint-Simon said, the golden age lies ahead of us, not behind us. Um, and for example, you know, take two of the most important cultural figures of that post-1848 moment in France, Charles Baudelaire and Gustave Flaubert. Um, in Baudelaire's famous poem, The Flowers of Evil, which is published in 1857, he likens the poet in bourgeois Paris to an albatross on dry land. You know, he's awkward, he's ungainly, he's out of place. And in a sense, that's how he sees, the, that's how he sees poetry and art at that point, because it's as a source of value, it's somewhere out of place amidst all this kind of philistinism, this rank hypocrisy, the, the, the uh, sort of empty rationality of the bourgeois world. Uh, Baudelaire looks into the heart of modern Paris in many ways, which is the, in many ways the capital of uh, the 19th century, and he turns that filthy substance, as he sees, of bourgeois reality, the sin, the vice, the decadence and the poverty, uh, into so much sort of symbolist fodder. He works it up into art, and in that, act, that artistic activity, uh, he, sees, you know, he sees himself as somehow kind of redeeming some sense of meaning, some sense of value. Um, I would suggest that Flaubert's loathing of the bourgeois world is perhaps even stronger still. His most famous novel, uh, Madame Bovary, paints a scathing portrait of the, of the kind of um, the, uh, the imbecility, if you like, of petty bourgeois life, of its pretense, its, uh, its shallowness, its pointlessness. Um, his heroine, Emma Bovary, uh, she's at once this kind of... Um, plucky object of, uh, of sympathy. You know, she's doggedly following her heart and defying the stifling conventions of provincial bourgeois morality. Uh, but she's also, I think, the object of Flaubert's snobbery too. Uh, she's following her heart, but her heart is stuffed full of the, the cliches of romantic fiction, of the cheap romantic novels, if you like, uh, that were being produced for the you know, growing bourgeois female mass market. Uh, Flaubert's depiction it looks like life, it looks like a realistic novel, but at the same time he's suggesting that the life he's depicting lacks any sense of vitality. This is not a world in which there is anything of value, anything worth preserving. Um, as the great, uh, uh, well, great literary critic Eric Oyerbach said of Flaubert, his work appears to contain something like a concealed threat. The period in which Flaubert's writing is charged with its stupid issuelessness like an explosive. Now, Flaubert's answer to this decadence, to this decay which he sees all around him, he, he's not to ally, ally himself with any kind of socialist cause. He's not going to man the barricades. He's too kind of corpulent for that. You know, these are kind of hope bourgeois figures, not revolutionaries. Their, their solution, as I say, to the stupid issuelessness, the decadence, if you like, of bourgeois life, its meaninglessness, its futurelessness, is the act of artistic creation itself. In Baudelaire, it's the poetic act of transfiguring an ugly reality 
And in Flaubert, it takes the form of an obsessive dedication to the craft of writing itself. So they establish this kind of opposition, this opposition of art versus life. Um, or later still, kind of art for art's sake is the decadent counterpoint, if you like, the decadence of bourgeois society. And I'm drawing attention to this, to this, to this moment, certainly this moment is in, in, in 1850s France. I'm drawing, ten, drawing attention to this because the moral depletion, if you like, of the bourgeois world is being generated from within, from within and by its very own cultural elite. Of course, many were not quite so disillusioned, but I think among uh, European, um, European intellectuals, uh, there, is, there is this sense of growing and profound disillusionment uh, for which the elevation of the aesthetic acts as a kind of consolation. And it's not, you know, it's not growing uniformly. I think in, in England it's not nearly so palpable, partially because class conflict is far more mediated. You know, it's generating reform rather than conflict. There isn't this sense of impending collapse, uh, this sense of decay seeping out of uh, every aspect of social life. Whereas in France, of course, it's more intense. But I think it's what, what's interesting is that it's in post-1848 Germany that the bourgeois world comes under its most sustained cultural ideological assault. And I think that's because Germany, uh, as everyone knows, had still not undergone a kind of bourgeois democratic revolution as England had in the 17th uh, centuries, France in the 18th. You know, even Hungary has managed to have a successful one in 1848. It was yet to be a nation state. It was still a patchwork quilt of statelets in the 1850s and 1860s. But there were, of course, an increasing number of, of, of Germans, you know, officials, businessmen and so on. In fact, the, the, German, the emerging German bourgeoisie, who were pushing still for the unification of German, uh, Germany as a single nation state. But, but, and I think this is absolutely key to understand why in Germany you get the most, um, the most vehement assault on bourgeois ideology. But they were pushing, German, uh, German, certain sections of German society were pushing for this transformation, this unification of Germany, after the outbreak of class conflict. And, you know, the revolt of, Silesian Re uh, of the, the uh, Silesian Weavers happens in the 1840s. Um, Germans pushing for unification, they're pushing after the emergence of socialist organisations, after the radical democratic demands of, the eight, of 1848. They were pushing for it, in other words, in full knowledge of that spectre haunting European elites. So unlike the English and French revolutions, where any sort of bourgeois versus uh, worker-peasant conflict could be submerged in some amorphous third estate, or the idea of the Englishman, or the idea of a people, before emerging afterwards, after, after the change, after the revolt, in a kind of split between moderate reformist elements and, a, and radical popular demands. Think Cromwell versus the levellers. Uh, German, German, Germany's bourgeois class couldn't do that. The conflict was already open, out in the open beforehand. So German nationalism in the period of its unification in the 1860s and 1870s acquires a different form to the one that it acquired in England and France. It is less liberal. It is less democratic. And as shown by the anti-socialist laws, uh, which uh, reimposed at various points throughout the 1870s and 1880s, it will, be, it will be kind of full of a kind of anti-working class militancy. And it will be driven not by popular revolt, but by the Prussian state, uh, by the, you know, led by the Iron and Blood Chancellor, Otto von Bismarck. And I think this is important. The distinct form taken by German nationalism will be conjured up in the cultural imagination of the time almost as an antidote uh, to the democratic weakness, you know, the liberal spiritlessness, in short, the decadence of its French and English rivals. It will be a bourgeois revolution. In fact, you know, it's still a, a single market to be administered by a central state, albeit one replete in kind of feudal hang hangovers, including a Kaiser. 
but almost anti-bourgeois in name. It will even inform what appears to be an unlike, a uniquely German mission to combat the leveling down and the decadence of parliamentary democracies, liberalism and socialism and all the other rotten fruit of modernity. It would look like the promise of cultural regeneration and it would look like decadence is almost a problem for the bourgeoisie in other, in other places, other nations. Finally, this man, born in 1844 in, I'm going to say picturesque rural Germany. It, it, it might well not be, to be honest. Friedrich Nietzsche is very much of this moment. He's a proud Prussian patriot, certainly when young. Um, and I love this. He was absolutely delighted when the Paris Commune fell in 1871. Uh, directly after its fall, he writes to his friend, Baron von Gerstorff. And we've all got a friend like Baron von Gerstorff. Hope, hope. This is the other thing. I'm going to read Nietzsche, but I don't know if I should do it in a special Nietzsche voice. You know, there's a particular bombastic tone I should have. Hope is possible again. Our German mission, note this phrase, German mission, isn't over yet. I'm in better spirits than ever, for not yet everything is capitulated to the Franco-Jewish levelling and elegance. There is still bravery, and it's a German bravery, that there's something else to it than the elan of our lamentable neighbours. You know, he's a very modest man. Um, and in a sense, that's Nietzsche's politics, I think, in a nutshell. There are, fluctuation, there are fluctuations. He has a kind of brief flirtation with parliamentary democracy, but only really as a means to an end in, in, in the 1870s, late 1870s. But by and large, he's a principal spokesman for this peculiar form of anti-bourgeois, bourgeois nationalism. So what of Nietzsche's actual work? Um, I think essentially Nietzsche assumes there was a way of life, a way in which humans can be, which is in accordance, if you like, with their true with their nature, our nature, which is to say he has an overwhelming sense that we are naturally other than we are today in society, that there is a way of being and becoming which is to act in accordance with our instincts, uh, with our drives. Uh, it, is to be sent, it is to be a sensual, uh, desiring body. It's to be close to the earth, uh, a wild beast. You know, these are the kind of recurring motifs of... Um, of I'm going to say, thus spoke Zarathustra, which uh, has been haunting me as a, as, a, as a childhood lisper. And this way of being has been suppressed, crushed, leveled down, perhaps even erased by the moral demands of the herd, by the repressive morality and values of social life. And if you read social life, you can read effectively bourgeois social life, the, you know, the, the, you know, the, the crushing morality, uh, petty morality of bourgeois social life. So at a mythic kind of trans-historical level, Nietzsche is condemning ostensibly Christian society for forcing us to live against ourselves, against our instincts, against what he says in the genealogy of morality is the essence of life, namely the will to power. Uh, that is our core, that is our most natural instinct and it's being suppressed. And you can see this fundamental dualism of vitality, of a vi vitalistic realm versus a stultifying sociality in The Birth of Tragedy, which is his, his, his first proper work, which is published in 1872. But at that point, his revolt, partly, I think, because of his allegiance to Richard uh, Wagner, they, of course, famously fell out, and Wagner said that Nietzsche went a bit soft in the head because he masturbated too much. So it was a very acrimonious falling out. Partially because of his allegiance to Richard Wagner at this point, um, Nietzsche's revolt, I think, like Baudelaire's, like Flaubert's, is principally an aesthetic one. So in Birth of Tragedy, he returns to the pre-Socratic ancient Greeks, as actually Heidegger will, will too later. And he famously contrasts these two modes of artistic production. Uh, the one involves 
reason and self-control. He says that's the Apollonian. And I think architecture would be a very sort of Apollonian mode of, um, uh, of artistic production. But the other, the Dionysian, as he calls it, and he's referencing the ancient uh, festivals of Dionysus. But the other, the Dionysian mode, you've got to think dance music, you know, kind of just... I don't know, shaking, like Ian Curtis or something. Like that, 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 that's a kind of Dionysian mode of uh, artistic expression. It's precisely that in which humans express their true nature. Um, in the, and, this, and he writes, in the Dionysiac dithyram, uh, that's a kind of hymn sung and danced in honour of uh, Dionysus, he writes, man's symbolic faculties aroused to their supreme intensity. The essence of nature was now to find symbolic expression. And further on, he writes of how one loses oneself in this act of Dionysian artistic expression. One loses one's self-control. One almost frees oneself of, you know, repressive social forces. Um, and he writes, and hitherto hostile nature refines her lost son. Or to put it another way, in relinquishing oneself, in letting it all hang out in a kind of crazed dancing, letting oneself be... Uh, one, the lost son finds nature again. You know, everything's kind of reconciled in a Dionysian mode. And he writes, man is no longer an artist. He's become a work of art. Uh, the artistic power of the, whole of, of the whole of nature reveals itself to the supreme gratification of the primal oneness amidst the paroxysms of intoxication. At this stage, then, as I say, Nietzsche, like Flaubert, like, like Baudelaire, like, the, uh, like earlier romantic theories of art, in fact, frames his revolt against bourgeois society in terms of the aesthetic, in terms of art. That in art, one expresses what society denies, which is, as Nietzsche sees it, human nature, instinct, drive, life, vitality. But Nietzsche soon rejects this earlier aesthetic position. He dismisses it as an artist's metaphysics, just as he dismisses Richard Wagner himself. Um, but I'd maintain that that Dionysian moment never really goes away. It's, that it's, it's just that instead of um, man becoming himself in art, he's to become himself in life. Instead of creating art, this is key, I think he's going to create values. Now, Nietzsche's critique of modern society's decadence, his critique of bourgeois modernity, also deepens, I think, at this point. Uh, the basic assumption is still the same. The bourgeois society's morality, its values, liberal, egalitarian, democratic, suppress what is natural in man, his instinctual drives. And he writes, he writes of these, everything in the organic world consists of overpowering, of dominating. So that's being repressed. That's being, everything's being leveled out, so no one's really able to rise to the, rise to the top. Nietzsche goes further by attempting to explain how this happens, especially in the, in, in the genealogy of morality, which is published in 18, 1887. There he asks... In what conditions did man invent morality? In what conditions did he invent the ideas of good and evil? Because he insists they are simply invented. They're not handed down from up on high by God. And Nietzsche argues that their foundation lies not in an eternal idea of right, but in sheer might, effectively. And so the mighty uh, defeating and then ruling over the weak as masters over slaves, uh, they create values because they judge their actions as good and noble. And they judge... The slaves and their actions and so on, they judge them bad. Uh, they, even, they give them um, pejorative names. They give them pejorative values. They're common, uh, plebeian and so on. And that's how values and morals are created in Nietzsche's world. Uh, the masters determine what is esteemed and what is not. They are the creators of value, the evaluators, if you like. Now, Nietzsche's pretty hap happy with that kind of state of affairs. Uh, that's just hunky-dory. You know, humans have exercised their will to power and society has organized itself 
according to a strict but natural hierarchy. But there's a problem. The weak, the put-upon, and so on, they develop a, what he calls resentment towards the masters, a deep psychological loathing, which becomes, as Nietzsche puts it, creative and gives birth to its own values. Um, or better still, it transvalues the values of the strong. It reverses them. This is the moment the noble master's morality is superseded by what Nietzsche calls slave morality. But such is the strength of resentment, it's, po you know, it's a poisonous, vengeful pathology, that noble values of strength or conquest and so on are presented, or not just presented as negative, as bad, they're presented as evil, and therefore they're to be you know, subject to con continuous punishment. And the values, uh, the values of the weak, the slaves, are given a positive spin. And in that sense, the, the weak and the slaves avenge themselves almost forever upon the strong. They force them to submit to their values, to accept that everyone, say, is possessed of equal dignity, that one must love thy neighbour. And Nietzsche really does not love any of his neighbours. <laughs> and because slave morality, which Nietzsche says begins with the Jews, avenges itself on the strong, on those who have manifest their natural instinct to domination, it avenges itself then on what is most natural, uh, what is most vital in man, his will to power. So by asserting in the slave morality of Christianity that all are equal before God in creating a tablet of commandments to keep men in line, Nietzsche says, we've not only lost our fear of what is most natural in man, but we've lost our love for him too. Um, that's from the genealogy of morality again. Slave morality, vengeful and punitive towards man at his most natural, not only represses then what is most vital, what is most natural in man, in doing so it fuels what he calls nihilism. Because in suppressing our nature, our vitality, our will to power, we end up willing nothing. Right? So our age, our age in which slave morality is, is triumphant, writes Nietzsche, is the age of nihilism. God is dead is another way of putting it. Um, nihilism is the conceptual twin of decadence. Nietzsche therefore urges the destruction of the current tyranny or slave morality so as to overcome, regenerate, reinvigorate, revitalize. Uh, everything of today, he writes, in, th in Thus Spoke Zarathustra, it is falling, falling into decay. Who would want to keep it? But I, I would give it a further push. Interestingly, in imagining these individuals, these creative destroyers, these ubermenschen, each asserting uh, his or her will as an evaluator, as a creator of values, Nietzsche anticipates the culture wars, a massive contest over values where everybody's out there, putting their values to the test, arguing, fighting over them. He writes, On a thousand bridges and footpaths they shall throng towards the future, and more and more shall war and, be in and inequality be set amongst them. Devisers of images and spectres they shall become in their enmities, and with their images and spectres they shall yet fight their highest fight against themselves. Good and evil and rich and poor and high and lowly and all the names of values, weapons they shall be, and clashing signs that life must itself overcome itself again and again and again, which sounds fun. Um, but Nietzsche also often, also often resolves the problem of decadence through the singular redeeming figure, a singular creative evaluator who could restore and revitalize simply through his unvarnished will to power and his willingness to judge what he wills to be good. This man of the future will redeem us from the great nausea, the will to nothingness, from nihilism, writes Nietzsche. Now, sometimes this figure is specific. Sometimes it's, uh, it's Napoleon who, uh, who Nietzsche venerates. 
Um, sometimes it's what Bismarck should have been if he hadn't made too many concessions to liberal democracy. Um, and here we're bringing Nietzsche back down again from his allegorical heights, uh, I think, to the prosaic historical reality, which he was always, always addressing. He wants effectively a strong leader who, through force of will, will reevaluate re the world, will give it some meaning, give it some purpose again. And the slave morality he opposes, the vengeful, punitive life suppressors, are equally of this world. Um, they're, as he puts it in the Antichrist, they're the socialist rabble undermining the worker's sound instinct, good spirits, and sense of contentment, making him envious and instructing him in vengeance. That is Nietzsche's social vision, if you like, a strong leader revitalizing and uh, infusing the world with me meaning, uh, ruling over a, a, effectively a, a contented slave class, free of envy and potential resentment. Now, Nietzsche dies in 1900. As I say, I don't know if it is from excessive masturbation, but he does. But his influence is rapidly growing. He's, he, Nietzsche's far more influential towards the end of his life when he's losing his mind and certainly afterwards uh, when he's dead. I don't know if he'd appreciate that. Uh, his influence is rapidly growing in Germany. It helps that it's allegorical, that it's aphoristic, because it can always escape from any political specificity. Um, in this case, bourgeois decadence and, I think, socialist resentment. Uh, and it can then be easily repurposed. Now, Nietzsche continues to have an incredibly vital afterlife. And, of course, Nietzsche's legacy uh, and his prevalence is, is helped by his virulently anti-Semitic sister who packages up his work into kind of handy, uh, bite-sized, you know, B-row Nazi chunks. But more than that, more than that, Nietzsche's work resonates it captures, I think, in peculiar... You know, there's no doubt Nietzsche is a, is a fantastically acute, I don't know, cultural critic. It, it, it captures, I think, in peculiarly intense form the deepening sense among a cultural elite of what, it, of what feels like the cultural, the cultural crisis of capitalism, of liberal democracy and its socialist spawn. Uh, and, of course, he gives it names. He gives it the age of nihilism. He gives it a slogan, God is dead. And he provides a diagnosis. Slave morality is repressing, suffocating our most vital, most natural, and most human instincts. And you can see its influence uh, most spectacularly, perhaps, on Sigmund Freud, who, when philosophizing, as he does in Civilization and its discontents, conceives of civilization in opposition to, the, to, to, to you know, instinctual drives and so on. And you see it again, I think most interestingly, in Max Weber, who, in his 1919 Science as a Vocation lecture, channels Nietzsche at his most pessimistic. Our age is characterized by rationalization and intellectualization, he writes, and above all by the disenchantment of the world. Now, Weber's age of disenchantment is Nietzsche's age of nihilism reworked. After all, what is it to say that the world is disenchanted other than to say that the religious, sacral meaning with which our activity used to be invested has disappeared, died? It's just now, it's just stock-taking, it's just profit margins, it's just means masquerading as ends. Weber continues, the resulting fate of our age is precisely the ultimate and most sublime values have withdrawn from public life. But Weber's vocation lecture comes in 1919. Um, as we should see, after the Great War, few think well of the world, few of any word, good words to say about liberal capitalism. But what's interesting is that Weber also thought this before, before the war. It shows that Nietzsche had long been the prism through which he and many others had come to understand and critique the development 
of bourgeois modernity. And you can see this in the Protestant ethic and the spirit of capitalism, which is published in 1905. There, again, he argues that the religious ends, which once sanctified, say, the increase of capitalism end in itself, which gave meaning to our activity in the sense of a work ethic, which once gave instrumental reason, its, its reason to be, uh, that these have decayed, they've died. Uh, the result is a Nietzschean image of man's self-domination. Uh, and I'll quote this in full because it's a marvellous quote. The Puritan wanted to work in a calling. We are forced to do so. For when asceticism was carried out of monastic cells into everyday life and began to dominate worldly activity, it did its part in building the tremendous cosmos of the economic order. The order is now bound to the technical and economic conditions of machine production, which today determine the lives of all individuals who are born into this mechanism. Not only those directly concerned with acquisition with irre irresistible force, Perhaps it will, it will so determine them until the very last ton of fossilised coal is burnt. In the Methodist view, the care of external goods should only lie on the shoulders of the saint like a light cloak, which can be thrown aside at any moment. But fate decreed that the cloak should become an iron cage. And there are countless other examples of this sentiment uh, across Europe, but particularly in Germany. This fin de siècle sense that while the economy might be growing, that while we might be progressing in a bourgeois sense, that we're becoming, as Nietzsche puts it, better-natured, cleverer, more comfortable, uh, we have lost something. We've lost a sense of why, lost a sense of mission, of purpose. And the more and more intense this cultural disillusionment becomes, the more intense is the demand, if you like, for the revitalization of the world. Um, and this, I would suggest, is almost how many in Germany's cultural and political elite and increasingly beyond conceived of Germany's mission in August 1914. Its enemies are France and England, but they're not just imperial adversaries, although they are that too. They're cultural adversaries. They're the embodiment of the trivial, trivial shallow, dispiriting uh, bourgeois world. Uh, the historian um, uh, Modris Eckstein's In Rights of Spring puts this well. Most Germans regarded the armed conflict they were entering in spiritual terms. Until September, the government and military had no concrete war, uh, war aims, only a strategy and a vision, that of German, German expansion in an existential rather than physical sense. This sense of Germany's existential mission cuts across class and party in, 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 in 1914. Staunch liberals like Theodor Heuss said he was convinced of Germany's moral strength and superiority. Uh, even a liberal left type like Konrad Hausmann, he said, in Germany there was a single will in everyone, the will to assert oneself. You know, they, they sound like they are... They are just imbued with Nietzschean sentiment. Even the social, uh, even the social Democrats spoke of defending culture and thereby German culture, and thereby and thereby freeing Europe. And tellingly, even the depressive Max Weber was tremendously excited by the prospect of war. This was Germany's chance, if you like, to smash the iron cage of rationality. Now. This will sound almost glib. Uh, Germany loses the war, I think. But in many ways, Nietzsche still wins because what moral authority bourgeois society and capitalism had after the war is, is virtually gone. It's, it's dried up, not just in Germany, but in France and even England too. The age of nihilism looks to be well and truly upon Europe. Uh, most obviously, there was an irretrievable sense of rupture um, a civilization perished in 1914, writes the historian E.H. Carr, and no return is possible. Elsewhere, uh, this is uh, Len Leonard Wolf, uh, kind of Bloomsbury group patriarch. Uh, in those pre-1914 days, there was an ordered way of life, a law, a temple, and a city, a civilization of sorts. After the war, there's just hatred, fear, and self-preservation. 
And the poet Siegfried Sassoon echoed Wolf's sense of rupture, of loss. What a peaceful world it was and what a bullying, barbarian world it is now. And Nietzsche himself is actually being read and, well, read and used more than ever, I think, outside Germany now. He informs D.H. Lawrence's vitalistic appeal to sex and the, and the quick of life. Uh, and he's a strong undercurrent in writers as different as Wyndham Lewis, James Joyce, George Bernard Shaw. Um, and interestingly, his work seeps into a high cultural assault, actually, on the English middle class, the clerk, the uh, dweller in the newly built suburbs, the mass of dolts, as Ezra Pound called them. Uh, as D.H. Lawrence put it in the, in, in, the, in the kangaroo, that the mass of mankind is soulless. Most people are dead and scurrying and talking in the sleep of death. This, if you like, is a, is a mass moment of, of societal self-loathing in which a cultural elite turns against uh, mass culture, turns against um, bourgeois culture. Uh, but elsewhere, amongst avant-garde, uh, other European avant-garde, the post-war disenchantment has fueled something like Nietzsche's idea of creative destruction. Uh, so you have the emergence of Dada uh, in, well, it's largely a German movement, but it emerges in, in Zurich in 1917, strangely at the same moment that Lenin's there. And with Dada, you see the self-conscious creation of what they call anti-art, you know, of unstructured theatre performance, of, uh, of nonsense uh, sound poems, uh, cut-up poems that have no meaning. Uh, and its creators, they want to shock. They want to cause offence. They want to outrage, as far as they're concerned, their bourgeois audience. That's who they're aiming it at. In Italian futurism, which, of course, emerges before the First World War, but postdates it too, you have a self-conscious war on the old, on tradition, on everything that reeks of that long 19th century in one of their countless manifestos. And the thing is about a lot of these avant-garde of the 1910s and uh, 1920s, it's their manifestos, which are the only things which you can really read now. Um, in one of the Futurist manifestos, Marinetti writes, we will destroy the museums, libraries, academies of every kind. We will fight moralism, strangely, feminism, every opportunistic cowardice. They seek instead, the Futurists, to fuse what they consider to be the vital energies of the age in technology, especially in technological warfare, in the car and the gun. They want to fuse with these energies. That's where the meaning uh, is to be sought. They seek to leave behind the bourgeois self and indulge in some form of you know, high-tech uh, Dionysius, uh, Dionysian self-expression. Um, and over and over again, you see, you, you see something similar. I, I, I can mention... Surrealism, surrealist manifestos, again, they, they denounce bourgeois world as shit. They use the word shit. It's, it's crap. Uh, the, its products are, are meaningless, empty. Um, Andre Breton, I remember, describes a, a naturalistic or realistic writer describing a room. And he says, what on earth does this description tell me? It tells me nothing. I don't care what color the, what color the wallpaper is or how the light is hanging. Um, none of this means anything anymore. And mirroring the futurists, they seek out another way of being that is truer and closer to who we really are, as they see it, in the workings, I guess, in the, in, in the workings of the unconscious or the subconscious. Over and over again, you see similar flights away from the empty, deconsecrated forest of the social world, as Marcel Proust had it, and then flights into the interior world of monologue, of streams of consciousness, um, an interior world where meaning can be conjured up again. So I think post-war modernism is the crisis of bourgeois legitimacy at its most explosive and at its most creative. More broadly, I think, I, 
George Orwell captures well just how pervasive this crisis of meaning was in his 1939 novel, Coming Up for Air. I've enough sense to see that the old life we used to is being sawn off at the roots. There are millions of others like me, ordinary chaps like me everywhere, chaps I run into in pubs, bus drivers and travelling salesmen for hardware firms. They've all got the feeling that the world's gone wrong. They can feel things cracked and collapsing under their feet. Now, I promised to frame this discussion with the, uh, with the other great moustache, Martin Heidegger. It's not a great moustache, it's a rather meagre one. Martin Heidegger. And I'm going to do that in hopefully uh, no more than two minutes. Um, <laughs> Being in Time, published in 1927, uh, but it's been brewing a lot longer before that. Now, at first glance, it looks intimidating, but a bit niche. Um, and given its refusal to use a traditional philosophical vocabulary, it looks pretty incomprehensible. Um, I'm not going to delve too much into... Heidegger's use of language, although it's absolutely essential to understanding Heidegger, but I'm going to say what makes Being in Time remarkable is that it provides, I think, one of the most thoroughgoing critiques of modernity, certainly of bourgeois modernity. Uh, perhaps not obviously at first. At first, it looks like he's going to simply show how the world comes to appear to us, how it acquires its meaning for us. And it's a very complicated explication, but essentially it boils down to this. Uh, you know, I'm thrown into the world as an individual. He calls it an individual Dasein, but lots of, lots of debate about that. Thrown into the world, I always already find myself in the world. I come to relate and understand my there, my world around me, principally through my, the use I make of things around me. Uh, the ready to hand, he calls them. Um, so that's how we principally come to engage with being with the world, through the use, uh, the, the use we make of it. Um, and then he says there's, a, there's another form of knowledge as, as well, which is a kind of second-hand theoretical knowledge. He calls that present hand. We don't need to worry too much about that, at, well, perhaps ever. But more than that, more than that, he says, uh, Dasein, I'm gonna, for the sake of clarity, I also always already find myself in a world with others. And this is where the critical... Um, destructive element of Heidegger starts to emerge. Because the problem of being in the world with others is that I tend to see myself in terms of those others. I act and think not as myself, but as one would. Uh, that is, I, I start to think and act in terms of the they, as, uh, as the translation of Heidegger's Das Mann has it. Um, this, this social uh, milieu, this they, this... Um, repressive social force even prescribes, writes Heidegger, even prescribes one's state of mind and determines how one sees. He puts that in inverted commas. And this mode of being in the world with others, performing social roles, sharing, you know, having shared values and so on, this Heidegger will say and damn as inauthentic. Uh, he says this isn't a moralising analysis. He's got nothing against being inauthentic, but by and large people don't have this desperate aspiration to be inauthentic. It feels and looks like a moralizing analysis because that's what it is. You know, inauthenticity is not being oneself, not seizing, uh, not taking responsibility for one's own life. That's how Heidegger sees it. And that, that, it, that is a bad thing. And Heidegger sees it as a bad thing. And of course, Heidegger then will go on to talk about angst or anxiety uh, as the mood in which one becomes aware of one's inauthenticity, a mood in which one is wrenched from the common understanding of the world and oneself and becomes aware of one's irreducible finitude, that this is my life and I've got to make the most of it. You know, that's a very dumbed down interpretation, but that's roughly what it feels like. Now, what I would say that Heidegger establishes then in Being in Time and Beyond is the fundamental illegitimacy 
of bourgeois modernity, which he presents as this being with others. Uh, he says that it almost always will foster an entirely inauthentic sense of self. So it's always going to be creating um, inauthenticity. And that therefore, within this place, this world with others, this bourgeois world, you will never, you will never be yourself. So he also establishes then, I think what first Alexander Kolchev in his 1930s lectures on Hegel, which is heavily influenced by Heidegger, and later Jean-Paul Sartre in Being and Time, calls our essential, our essential non-identity. Um, and that means that we are not, as, a, we are not um, as society as others demands or expects of us. We are, can always be other. We are not, we are not a thing. Um, now, on the one hand, this is the condition of existential freedom. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a positive moment, um, the, the chance to um, take hold of ourselves and uh, you know, constantly be in the process of becoming ourselves through our choices and actions. But on the other hand, and I think this is intriguing, I think it does something else. Um, in asserting that we are defined by our essential non-identity, which is there in Heidegger and extrapolated in 1930s and particularly 1940s France, in saying that we are defined by our essential non-identity, it starts to turn identity into a quest. The search, if you like, for the moment when you do become self-identical, when you do coincide with yourself, when you effectively become uh, a thing, uh, when your quest is actually to be this person and to have it recognized. So even then, I think, in some microscopic form, there is the seed amidst the wreckage of bourgeois ideology of the identitarian form that the culture wars will take. And that is my conclusion. You've been listening to Dr. Tim Black, with the lecture The Crisis of Bourgeois Ideology, From Nietzsche to Heidegger. We'll return next week with another lecture, which will be from Angus Kennedy, who will be looking at the culture of disenchantment, technology, art, Heidegger. So don't forget to subscribe to this Ideas Matters podcast on your favourite feed. And if you can, we'd be grateful if you could leave a review, which will help us get the word out about this series. For anyone who wishes to explore any of the lecture topics in more depth, then do check out the additional readings that are listed in the accompanying notes to the podcasts. Or you can visit the Academy at our website, www.theboi.co.uk. I'm Alistair Donald, Secretary of the Battle of Ideas Charity, which organises the Academy, as well as Debating Matters Schools Debating Championships and Living Freedom, the annual residential school for under-25s. If you would like to support this podcast or any of the educational and citizenship initiatives, then please consider making a donation to the charity. More details of our work and how to support us are available at the website www.theboi.co.uk. Finally, thanks to Will Nesta Sherman who edited this podcast series. Music